Well, I don't think faith is faith until that's all you have to hang on to. And we were both in our different kinds of illnesses. We were both driven to the point where it was life and death. And so faith was the only thing we had to hold on to. Not just your faith, but the faith of your children, your husband, your friends. Everybody can join in their faith, and everybody gets to have these miraculous things. They have the privilege of seeing them, and they have the grand intuition to add to that in every way. I felt like everything I've done that's been a challenge has driven me closer and closer to the Lord. Everything. I'm Sarah Jane Weaver, editor of The Church News. Welcome to The Church News Podcast. We are taking you on a journey of connection as we discuss news and events of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland and his wife, Sister Patricia Terry Holland, have dedicated their lives to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This special episode of The Church News Podcast is the first in a two-part series, featuring the Hollands sharing the lessons they have learned through the course of their lives. Elder Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has served as a general authority since April 1989 and is the former president of BYU. Sister Holland served as a counselor in the Young Women General Presidency during the organization's formative years when the Young Women theme and values were created. The Hollands are joined today by guest host Sister Sherry Dew, a former member of the Relief Society General Presidency and the Executive Vice President of Deseret Management Corporation. The three talk about their lives, leadership, service, and testimonies, and how in so many nations across the globe, they have stood as living witnesses of the Savior Jesus Christ. We're thrilled to get a chance to talk to you two. Thank you. We love you. We love you. We love you, and we're just a little microcosm of the whole church that loves you. So we can't speak for the whole church, but let's speak for the whole church and tell you they love you. Let's go back a ways. And Sister Holland, I'm going to start with you. You were I've heard your husband say that you were a general officer of the church long before he was called as a general authority. My aunt never stopped talking about fighting all the time. And I, I will say, I still remember... This would be a reflection you would have no way of knowing, but I remember going to a general young women's meeting and was sitting near the front right behind a young president, Jeffrey R. Holland, president of BYU. And I still remember you as president Holland. I don't remember who you were sitting by and you were getting ready to conduct. Do you remember that? You conducted mm-hmm. a meeting and we I remember in from Israel, I think. So sitting right behind you, I remember somebody saying, how are you doing? President Holland, and you said, well, we'll be a lot better after this meeting is over. (laughs) And I just remember thinking all the pressure that goes into anything at the general level. So let's go back to when you were a general officer, a counselor to Sister Ardeth Cap, who was then the general young woman president. As you look back at that service when you were pretty young, what lessons or insights have you carried forward with you? Did you learn then that you've brought forward with you since that time? I learned a lot from Sister Cat for one thing. And to be called to serve on the general level was such an honor to me. But it took me to my knees. It was really quite overwhelming. 
Jeff had a, he was a busy, busy young president, as you say. And my focus in my life, my whole life was my children first. So they were full time. And then this seemed like such a full time calling. And I was only going to go up one day a week, but we decided that the program needed to have more of a spiritual focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, the program that was currently there was just somehow didn't hit the right notes for me, for her, for the board. We just felt like we needed something more spiritual for the young women to focus on. Because what you focus on is what you become. And young women don't have these values yet. They don't have faith and divine nature and all of that. So that's what we decided it needed to be its focal and have them repeat it enough that it really went into their hearts and souls and spirits. And we were absolutely blessed beyond compare. Can't believe the miracles that had to take place. Mm-hmm. You know, to have a program, make it through all that I had to do mm-hmm. to become part of the church. It was like 18 months, I mean. Well, and we should say that that was when the Young Women Values came about. <laughs> and uh, my goodness, have had a phenomenal impact all these decades. We're now talking decades. And I've heard Sister Cap say, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I've heard it repeatedly. I've heard her say, we couldn't have done that without Sister Holland, that you were so integral to that entire process of receiving revelation and moving forward, that you were just essential there for that season of time. Thank you. She believed in me. And uh, I have to say, I since I was driven to my knees, that I knew with all of these challenges that I already had, that I had to live by the Spirit. So it just kind of forced me to focus in a way that I've never focused before and to focus on such, you know, the general level with young women all over the globe. And how can we change this? How can we enforce all of the things that... Yeah, that's beautiful. That you need to have within the lives of these young women. If they have these few spiritual moorings, that takes them through a lot of stuff. They can avoid a lot of tears and, mm-hmm. and have more peace and tranquility. That's beautiful. Now, Elder Holland, you were a very busy university president. And when I think about a president of BYU having a wife who's a general officer, there had to have been times when you thought you would just mm-hmm. pop. The schedule, the pressure, just the demands on the collective time of both of you and your family. But then you've lived a life now of busyness, lots to do. Were there some formative things that happened during that period that you think that you've brought forward? Uh, Sure. It was a hard time. Later on, uh, President Hinckley, who was the principal officer advising us at that time in the First Presidency, later said, I don't know what on earth possessed us to do that. But I do. Uh, Pat was uh, essential to it. I say that with uh, all the bias that I can claim. Uh, She was essential to that. And I don't know that she could have gone another month. She lost weight. We were uh, making sure that uh, 
she got out the door and up to Salt Lake, but she was making sure that she got back to take care of us and um, raising children. Uh, still, I guess uh, Duff, in their was, years. Duff was in this like the sixth grade and yeah. Mary was in junior high. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a hard time. That's a long introduction to say it, it was hard, but I'm very proud of her doing that. I think she, she gave all that she could give flat out, uh, helping to write those values and to work through the theme and all the thing that we now take for granted or did take for granted in the young women's program from a program that was, always kind of behind what we did for the boys. They had the scouts and they had, you know, bad sashes and and all the rest. And the young women didn't have much until that got almost reversed. Mm -hmm. Later on, it was the young men trying to catch up uh, with the young women. Don't we have values and (laughs) uh, themes and, and whatever? So it was a tremendously productive, spiritually productive time in the generation of that program. And I think she was essential to it. She gave everything she had, but I think got uh, released at about the time we and she could have survived and still still hang in there because mm-hmm. um, more than that, we, we would have been a little bit pressed. I was actually, I don't know that this is public, but I was actually thinking maybe I needed to step down. If she was going to continue, I needed to support her. She'd always supported me. I'd step down at BYU and we'd carry on that way. It didn't come to that, but it was uh, we were we were giving all we had. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. But it was good, and uh, we learned to be disciplined and help each other. And the kids were great. The kids were phenomenal. They were magnificent about their support. What did it do for your children to see this and to be in the middle of this whirlwind? But all for the Lord. Yeah. What do you think it did for them? It was really wonderful, especially since Mary was the same age as the young women. My age, she, I conversed with her about so many things and uh, why we should go, you know, the pattern we should follow, a new pattern. And she was really blessed. And Matt was getting ready for his mission, and he saw his mother crying every morning to get the help of the Lord because. I did end up driving up here every day. I practiced music with my children at 6 in the morning or 5 in the morning. Drove up to Salt Lake, home late with board meetings. And, and they saw how much we loved the gospel, and they supported that. I'm not sure they could do that if we were doing anything else that required that much time that isn't for the Lord, that isn't to build a kingdom. Well, you have three spectacular children and now grandchildren. And so what do you do as the patriarch and matriarch of your family to instill that continually in them, considering all the challenges that your grandchildren have today that maybe weren't the same challenges that your children had? Here again, I pay tribute to Pat. These kids have grown up knowing that when you have problems, you take it to the Lord. If they came home in tears about something, the first response from their mother was, well, we'll pray about it. It wasn't, oh, you know, pull up your socks. It wasn't, uh, we'll go punch that guy in the nose. It wasn't, uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll seek a professional counselor. It was, well, we'll pray about it. And if it's really, really serious, we'll fast about it. That's what they've known since uh, they were little. I mean, really little. And uh, thank heavens, they grew up with that and now pass that on to, to their children and uh, a tribute to the role of a mother in their lives. And I think that given this service, that was the one thing that worried her the most. I don't think she worried that I wasn't going to make it. She knew I'd, I'd make it okay at the university. I went to a lot of things alone uh, where it might have been a, both of us at another time, but that wasn't going to be a big problem. She was not about to have the kids pay a price, uh, the wrong price for this. They were willing uh, to uh, have her sacrifice for this, but she wasn't going to ask them to sacrifice for anything else. And so... Uh, they heard a gospel message from the from the beginning and uh, stayed with them. So we've touched on BYU. Your time as the president of BYU. A lot of really interesting things happened during your term. A national championship in football, which is pretty cool. But the Jerusalem Center is surely one of the pinnacle moments, would mm-hmm. that be fair to say? For sure. Yeah. What can you tell us about the range of challenges that that took because every time I've been in Jerusalem which is only a handful of times I'm just bowled over by the fact that it exists I'll start and Pat can fill in because she watched this at my side uh, I gave a talk at BYU not long ago we had a little we had a little 50 year anniversary of uh, how long that program has been in place and uh, I gave a, a talk about the miracles that I had seen. And I think the number, large or small, some larger than others, was something like 35 things that had to happen in order for that place to exist. And if any of them had gone south, we wouldn't have had it. Uh, And uh, it really is a miracle. And I can't regale you here with the reasons why we had no right to be where we are. I'll give you this much of a little snippet. When we uh, wanted to show President Kimball the property that we uh, wanted to get, we'd, we'd looked all over. We'd looked everywhere in, in uh, the area for property because uh, we'd, we'd lived in hotels. We'd lived in Kibbutzim. We'd, we'd lived everywhere. We needed our own facility. So we had a little ugly piece of property, a little L-shaped piece of property in a gully with some goats in it. And we, but well, there was nothing else. So we took President Kimball to, wanted to take President Kimball to look at it. He was not really well. It was the time of the Orson Hyde Garden dedication. So he sent President Tanner. And President Tanner, brilliant, wonderful man that he was, uh, took a quick look at this piece of property and you could tell by the look on his face that we weren't going to get that piece. He was not interested in that. And he started to walk. He walked up this gully and over across onto the brow of the hill, looking out over the old city, the most spectacular view of the old city anywhere in that immediate area, the uh, East Jerusalem. And uh, he turned to uh, the group and said, uh, this is the piece, get this piece. Well, he could have said, if you were in London, get Buckingham Palace. I mean, 
This was a place where the Supreme Court building was going to be built. It was a, a green zone. You wasn't going to be any building. Not. That's why the Supreme Court building hadn't been built. There was a concern about archaeological digs. It was contested because it was appropriated Arab uh, property from East Jerusalem, but Israel, the Jewish side of the community, was uh, the governing body. So it, I can't begin to list all of the problems why this was not going to be available. It wasn't possible. Uh, yeah, and about Basically. halfway through it, he said, don't tell me your problems, just get the property, and walked off. <laughs> so anyway, there we are. That's the property we're on. Low, uh, some many months later, and as a tribute to a lot of people who worked very hard, uh, Bob Taylor and Bob Thorne and Fred Schwendemann and Bob Smith and David Galbraith especially, and a whole host of people who lived with this, but one miracle after another, the right person at the right time, the right committee in the right hour, uh, the Knesset in the right mood at the right moment, and on and on and on. And so there we are. We had the building two-thirds of the way up before we got a building permit. Now, we could have been told to shut down. Well, they would have had every right to say, you were ahead of the game. You were too fast. We weren't illegal. We were just eager. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but they didn't. We were there, and we've been there for 50 years now, and 50 in terms of the total program, not 50 in that building. But mm -hmm. uh, it's a wonderful thing for the students of BYU to have a Jerusalem Center project. Oh, oh my goodness. Sister Holland, what would you add to that from what you observed? What I observe is just totally what my husband was able to participate in. He is a man with perfect faith. His patriarchal blessing is He's blessed with perfect faith. Because he has perfect faith, he has a lot of confidence. There isn't anything that can't be done. He's just, uh, you know, it's kind of like what he said, the President Tanner said. He would never say that cannot happen if he thought it was the right thing to do, no matter how hard it was. So I watched him sometimes. He took calls from Jerusalem all night long with President Hinckley which was such a hard time for him, too. So I saw this relationship with President Hinckley, with President Hunter, President Thales. What a beautiful relationship they contributed, not just to him, mm -hmm. but to my marriage. But I just have to say that he's a, he's a man of miracles because he believes so deeply that it could be done. President Monson used to kid us. Uh, he said, Jeff, you're the only man in the church who's on a first-name basis with the entire rabbinic community in <laughs> Jerusalem the, because they all met me at the airport with this sign, Jeff, go home, you know. Uh, uh, really, we one of the trips in, when it was at its most emotional, when it was at its most heated, with uh, hundreds, many days, and sometimes thousands turning into the streets uh, because they didn't know what was going on. They just knew that somehow we were invading their uh, space. So they met us at the airport and uh, the stewardess came on and said, we'd like everybody to deplane now except uh, Mr. and Mrs. Holland. Well, we knew there was a little message in that. <laughs> so they had everybody get off the plane. And then they took us off and took us through the back part. They took us back through the warehouse part of the uh, airline terminal. We were back with the food servers and, <laughs> and uh, all kind of UPS uh, people. And uh, we could hear this dull roar outside, but it was, I don't know, 500 yeshiva students. Uh, who were protesting our arrival, how My they knew goodness. we were coming, how they knew what flight we were on, I don't know. 
but uh, and they weren't uh, mean. They certainly weren't violent. Who were well, standing for a concert. He didn't. Uh, they didn't. But uh, they didn't bother us because they we were protected. They didn't hurt us, <laughs> but they they all they were out there with signs saying, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Mormons belong in Salt Lake City, and uh, okay. Jeff go home. And uh, but so it was a international incident. We went over one period of time. I went over to spend ten days doing nothing but interviews. I think I had forty interviews in that period of time with the press. Uh, with the press, just trying to tell our side of the story that we were not, for one thing, we were not a missionary center. This was not going to be a proselyting center. That was what. Uh, people were saying, and I guess fearing, but we just looked for a chance to tell our side of the story, and we were blessed in that regard, Uh, blessed and given things to say in interviews that I never would have known to say then and wouldn't have remembered to say afterwards, but just the the love of the Lord and the help of heaven uh, through that period, and and, uh, it sort of turned the tide at a time when uh, it really was beginning to get serious about how to uh, uh, how to uh, adequately tell our story and not have it look increasingly like the church was doing something wrong or 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 at least doing something un unkind. He told the students that they would have to sign a handbook of rules, but in that handbook of rules, paramount thing was um, that they couldn't proselyte. Mm-hmm. because they would just have sent us right back home, building mm-hmm. or not, they would have taken the building over mm-hmm. had they seen us as proselyting because mm-hmm. they said we've lost too many of our people to the Holocaust, to these wars. We can't lose anymore. They kept speaking about a spiritual Holocaust. Proselyte. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so they did. The students, I think, are still aware that they have to do that. But um, interestingly enough, we were talking with the mayor, who at that time was Teddy Collett. And I remember my husband showing him the Jerusalem Center, sitting down, looking at the view, and, this is one of and he hadn't really made any comments as they walked through the building. And as they got to the view, he said, well, you've taken the prime piece of property and made it the most beautiful building in the city. And, mm-hmm. and then he said, and I know your students are not going to proselyte. But what are you going to do with the light in their eyes? So when I think about your lives together, you've had such diverse and rich experiences, many of them very much together. So let's talk about the unusual assignment you received to go preside over the area in Chile for what, two years? Uh, Well, yeah, let me give you the background on that. President Hinckley had told us where he wanted two of the brethren to go before he said who the two would be. He said, uh, I'm toying with the idea of having two members of the 12 go out to the Philippines and to Chile. These were high growth areas, mm-hmm. very high growth. And as a result, some inactivity, sure. considerable inactivity in some areas, but, but a lot of growth with a lot of potential and essentially the same history created as areas at the same time, same number of stakes, same number of missions, roughly the same number of members. Well, I came home from that meeting and I said, honey, get ready. We're, we're on our way to the Philippines because I was the 11th member of 12. President 
then Elder Irene, uh, with Sister Irene's health, I knew that probably wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I, I know we're going. I'm the youngest there uh, by quite a bit, and I'm the junior available, and uh, get ready. So he calls us in. We're all ready to hear about the Philippines. He said, you're going to Chile. Well, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we just, we, you could have knocked us over with a feather and we didn't know any Spanish. I couldn't have ordered an empanada. I didn't, you know, I didn't know uh, anything about it. And, and I, we said, well, uh, let us at least go. Do you do know that we don't speak Spanish? He says, yeah, I do know that you don't speak Spanish. Uh, and I said, well, let us go to the MTC. Oh, no, no, no. We haven't got time for that. Just grab a dictionary and go, your quick studies, just go. So so in six weeks, we were gone, and Elder and Sister Oaks, as newlyweds, uh, were going to go spend their honeymoon in the Philippines. In Manila. In yes. Manila. Uh, so we got out there, and we were only going to go for a year. It was going to actually work out to be about 11 months. And I knew I needed to meet the missions and the missionaries and the state president. So I, we started in the north and just went from Arica to Punta Arenas. We were going as fast and as hard as we could. Didn't spend an ounce of time worrying about learning Spanish or anything else, but acquired a little as we went. So about, I don't know, uh, two-thirds of the way in, uh, start of the new year, we were actually thinking we haven't got long left to finish up here. We better hurry. President Hinckley calls and says, well, you probably actually are doing some good. So, yeah, it was, it was a Gordon B. Hinckley compliment. Uh, <laughs> says, why don't you stay another year? <laughs> and they said the same thing to the Oaks. So we did. And so it turned out to be just a little under two years, 23 months kind of thing. And we learned enough Spanish to have fun. And, and in the second year, I got a little more serious about learning it. Uh, but I, we'd have been more organized about to things if we'd have hadn't been on the run uh, from, that, day that, from day one that first year. But it paid off. The word was we were in the area and uh, having these meetings and talking to the members and, and doing all we could do with the missionaries. And the long and the short of it is, and I'll let Pat say what she wants to say about it, but we were unprepared to love it as much as we loved it. We loved everything about it. We loved uh, the people. We loved the language. We loved the music. We loved the, our non, non-member non neighbors. We just loved everything about it and had gone into it so totally anxious, uh, not knowing the language, uh, never having had any Latin experience. All of my uh-huh. experience had been in Europe or England, uh, the Nordics, that part of the world. Uh, so uh, just shows... We've used that with missionaries, by the way, including senior couples, including mission presidents, a lot of people to say, don't judge, don't worry, don't fret, mm-hmm. don't crawl in the corner and shed tears. You're all going to be unexpectedly, delightfully surprised at how you respond to the area because we, we simply adored every minute of it. And it was the least likely thing in the world that could have happened. So, Sister Holland, what, what was your reaction and experience in Chile? I just was proud of my husband. I thought, this is wonderful. If President Hinckley thinks the church needs to be developed in the the places like the Philippines or Chile, then he'll go and he'll do what he can do, and it will make a difference. And, And he says we didn't have any Spanish, but we both determined that we were going to learn enough Spanish 
to speak the gospel Spanish, uh-huh. church uh-huh. Spanish, and I could go to the grocery store <laughs> as far as I go. And we did love it. The people were so devoted. There's something really special about the Chileans yeah. and their faith. And just we love being with them. I've only seen the gift of tongues once in my life, in my whole life. Now, that's setting aside the the language that missionaries learn. I mean, there are, there are ways that sure. that gift of tongues is given to uh, missionaries and a lot of others. But to actually just see the gift, I only saw once, and I saw it from mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. We were in Viña del Mar, a lovely seacoast mm-hmm. place, in a state conference in the Saturday night meeting. And I was having her speak, and she said, I think I need to speak on tithing. She said, honey, <laughs> whoa, you know, we don't, this, this is six months into our experience or something. And I said, we don't know the vocabulary for tithing. We don't, uh, I, I, don't, I, don't I don't know how you can do that. And she said, well, I don't know how I can do it either, but that's what I think I'm supposed to do. So she stood up and for 20 minutes spoke flawless Spanish. My Spanish was good enough that I knew what she was saying or whether she was saying it right or wrong. And we actually did know the word for tithing, but she spoke unassisted on the law of tithing. And I've never Mm. seen that before in my life where she did not know the language and didn't know the vocabulary and didn't know the verb tense, but stood up and gave that sermon. So we had those kinds of blessings. We had, we really did. We had miracles uh, up and down the land. You'd been an area president in uh, England. Right. Now an area president in Chile. Yeah. And very different patterns of growth of the church, yeah. right, in those two areas. <laughs> so now taking both of those forward, what are some key learnings from those two experiences uh, presiding over an area that are helping you today? Uh, one was that we saw in Chile that people really will and can join the church. We'd beaten our head against the wall often in Great Britain or Western Europe or Scandinavia or wherever mm-hmm. the places where we'd served. Mm-hmm. It was really hard. Yeah. You, you, you fought to get uh, a convert baptisms in Chile. Call it believing blood. Call it... Uh, the promises to uh, the people of Lehi, call it what you want. But we just saw wonderful, wonderful people in significant numbers come into the church. What we had to do is make sure that they stayed and that the transition was uh, firm. Those were days when we were just beginning to talk about retention. And Chile had had a lot of baptisms for decades prior to that, but... uh, They weren't in church. They weren't in sacrament meeting. They weren't going to the temple. So we tried to introduce an era, not claiming any great success, except that we really worked hard at it, that we'd continue to try to bring people in, but we would do everything we knew how to do to keep them. And and it really helped form principles and and, and ideas and, and habits that I have now 25 years later. 20 years later, to make sure that we teach that way and that if I work with the missionaries, I'm talking that way about how they 
get them and keep them. And retention is a is a built-in part of uh, of the missionary experience. And uh, that coupled with going to the less active, we turned the missionaries loose on the less active, and we said, just go back to the legions that we've lost. And we were at one point we were bringing as many people back as we were baptizing. Wow. Uh, and they would have a cousin or an aunt or yeah, whatever yeah. they brought with them. So it was probably the yeah. best way to use Michigan. Well, it's great proselyting. There's always somebody behind that door that hadn't been baptized yet. So so you've touched on missionary work. Let's go down that just a little bit further, because I've heard both of you speak to missionaries more than once. And Elder Hall, and I've heard you say, no young man loved his mission more than That's I right. did. That's right. So now with all the experience you've had in in various areas of the church and so forth, what do you wish every young man and young woman knew? Think about all these audiences you've stood in front of, taught, and tried to motivate and inspire. What do you wish a young man or young woman knew as they get ready to leave? That they don't have to be afraid. They don't have to approach church work, missionary work especially, with fear. And they can develop faith. And we would hope that that's what we were sent to do as we went to the various missions and spoke to them. And my husband was very good at teaching those principles, teaching the, the way to do missionary work, because we got to know the missionaries in such a way that we never would have before, especially in Chile. We were had nine stakes, and we could focus on missionaries. So we knew their emotional problems and the fears. Mm-hmm. Am I... Am I going to be accepted here? What will I do when I go home? Will I have anything at home? Many things turning around in their minds. I wish they could go with peace, and that's something we've learned to speak about, is that they'll be blessed. They need to know that there are miracles in the church. They've happened, and they will again and again and again. What I wish uh, more missionaries had ready and with them in their heart and soul as they get ready to leave. You're talking about them launching mm-hmm. off on their mission. We were sad that not enough had read the Book of Mormon. Uh, mm-hmm. Some had. Uh, some had kind of read it in seminary. Uh, but uh, And I was one of those in an earlier day. Maybe that's why I was sensitive about it. But uh, if if missionaries come with a firm, powerful testimony of the Book of Mormon, they're halfway there. They're two-thirds the way there in, because of all the ancillary things that go with that. Uh, the spirit that comes with that, uh, the doctrine that comes with it, uh, the love of the scriptures that they're going to try to put in somebody else's life. It isn't just for them. They're going to help Mr. and Mrs. Gonzalez uh, learn to do that. So if you're narrowing it down to just some really basics and single things, that would have to be one of them. Another is and this is something Pat taught repeatedly all over England and all over Chile, that it really is. And we say this, and it's we have to work at not having it be a cliche, but it really is the spirit that does the converting. We're supposed to get out there and, and work as hard as we can, but then at some point uh, the hard work is done and the spirit has to do the converting and the teaching. So if a missionary can learn what that is, know how to feel it, know how to find it, um, how to let it happen, uh, how to get it into a meeting and watch it uh, come across the face, into the hearts of the people uh, sitting across from them on 
in the kitchen, wherever they're teaching this lesson. That's something a missionary probably doesn't know going out. There's probably no way for them to understand it till they get there. Okay. Probably begin to see it in the MTCs. Okay. But uh, just those, those are really basic, and we repeat them so often that maybe people take them for granted, but they're still true. Clichés really are true. <laughs> Originally, it was, we just need to keep teaching them and keeping them fresh. But uh, it's been one of the joys of our life. Uh, to teach missionaries is about as fun as anything we're ever called on to do. So uh, that's uh, the icing on the cake for a general authority. You have been listening to the first episode of a two-part special featuring an interview with Elder Jeffrey R. Holland and his wife, Sister Patricia Terry Holland, conducted by Sister Sherry Dew. I'm your host, Church News Editor Sarah Jane Weaver. I hope you have learned something today about The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by peering with me through the Church News window. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to join us for part two of this special conversation with the Hollands and Sister Dew. And if you enjoyed their messages and other messages shared in this podcast, please make sure you share the podcast with others. Thanks to our guests and to my producer, Kellyanne Halverson, and others who make this podcast possible. Join us every week for a new episode. Find us on your favorite podcasting channel, or with other news and updates of the church on churchnews.com.